Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. This is Episode 10, Security. Here's the thing about time. The more of it that goes by, the further away you get from the beginning of a story. You've been listening to season four episodes for what, probably a few hours? Did you have to turn me off to go into work or did you sit in your car to finish up the last few minutes of an episode before jogging in to clock in on time? How we use time says a lot about us. Nobody knows the painstaking agony of time ticking by into oblivion better than crime victims' families police, and journalists like me. With a cold case murder investigation, months turn into years and years into decades. And more often than not, we carry on with our lives forgetting that somewhere back in time, a life was taken. From 2006 until 2009, the name John Wells faded from people's memories, just like his picture faded from the yellow flyers, Helen, his mom, spent hours nailing to telephone poles all around Arcadia. Based on everything I've read in police reports, law enforcement's investigation into what happened to the 17-year-old slowed to a standstill during these four years. It was complete radio silence. One thing I can confirm happened was that Kurt Mays interviewed Kevin Callahan in jail, but that got the investigation nowhere. In the public space, local newspapers stopped running articles for the anniversary of John's death, and his high school friends graduated, grew up, and moved away. During that time, former DeSoto Sun newspaper reporter Steve Blanchard also left Arcadia, and with his departure went the last journalist who ever showed interest in the case. When I tracked him down all these years later, he hadn't heard the name John Wells in over a decade. What was your reaction when you saw my message and you saw, I was saying, John Wells, 2003? You know, what was your thoughts? It was surprising um, because I'm not even a journalist anymore. And when you're in a small town like that, you really see your audience as the people in that bubble and nobody beyond. So when I left that bubble, I kind of left all that there. I had to reread your email a couple of times because I'm like, is she serious? Is, who is this? How did she find me? But it was also exciting because it's a part of my life I hadn't thought about in a long time. So going back to what I brought up in the article... During our interview, I showed Steve clippings of articles he wrote in 2003. And after going down memory lane, he made an interesting comment that I think lies at the core of this case and should be something everyone should think about. Look at it as, you know, if it was a murder, which it was determined to be that at the beginning, you know, that means somebody committed a crime and didn't get caught for it. 
and therefore they're still out there, and what kind of danger is that to anybody else? I mean, if I was still living there, that would be my concern. Is there an actual murderer on the loose? God, I hope not. But if there is, that's a lot to worry about. Steve went on to say that time passing by slowly isn't necessarily a bad thing. Sure, there are obvious downsides to a stalled investigation, but the same days and years that frustrate law enforcement are the same days and years that weigh heavily on whoever killed John. Things have changed so much in the past 10, 15, 20 years that there's more resources available to get more information. Was John accidentally shot by a friend who fled and never told anybody and is, you know, freaked out and was that person protected because it was accidental? You know, there's there's so many questions you just don't you don't know, but I think things like a podcast that deals with true crime broadens the scope of people who may know something or may have heard something who can say, you know what, now that I think about it, that day, I remember whatever it might be, and that could be the key that opens things up. A question I've found myself asking a lot throughout various points in this investigation is, did DeSoto County Sheriff's Office use time to their advantage? Did they do anything from 2006 to 2009 to shake answers from Pat Strader or dig up new clues? Did they try to find more corroborating information to support any of their circumstantial or even limited physical evidence? The answers to those questions are no, no, and no. I know this because I've spoken with critical witnesses who were never contacted by law enforcement. Witnesses who were easy to find and who know very valuable information. Hello. Hi. Martin Hollingsworth. Martin Hollingsworth is a big name in Arcadia. Decades ago, his family bought acres and acres of land in Orange Groves off of Southeast Hansel Avenue. To this day, the Hollingsworth name carries weight in DeSoto County, and everyone in town knows someone in that family. In 2003, Martin lived directly behind Pat Strader's house, and his property line butted right up against hers. Back then, he didn't know her well, but he did have frequent interactions with John, Matt, and Mel Sr. before Mel Sr. died. He was a sweetheart. (laughs) Mel was just a a very likable, mellow man. (laughs) I initially reached out to Martin because I figured he could help me understand the area better. He's pretty old now and lives out of state most of the year, so I didn't expect our interview to result in anything earth-shattering. But to do my due diligence, I reached out anyway. When he finally called me back, he told me what I expected to hear, which was that he didn't remember much about John Wells. But he did remember one very important thing from the day the teen was killed. I was home, and I heard a shot, but that time I had no idea what it was because there are people who go hunting in the Joshua Creek swamp there. You heard the shot and then a few hours later you saw a scene there at the Strader property. Right, right. It was not particularly loud. I didn't think anything about it because it was not unusual for men to go back in there, with or without permission. So it was around lunchtime on July 8, 2003, that Martin heard a single gunshot ring out and then silence. 
At the time, he brushed it off and never put two and two together that what he heard and when he heard it could have been John Wells's murder taking place. When you saw the police scene happening at the Strader property later that day, did you have the thought to tell law enforcement, hey, I heard a gunshot earlier, or you just didn't think about it again? No, I didn't. I didn't think about it again. Have you ever been spoken to by law enforcement to get any sort of statement about anything you heard or saw that day? No. No. The police never came by and talked to you since you were a next-door neighbor? No. So, just to recap here, Martin Hollingsworth is the only person I've found in this entire case that heard a gunshot in the window of time that we know John was killed. What's more, Martin lived steps from the crime scene, and according to him, not once has law enforcement ever spoken with him. How it's even possible that no one ever thought to interview John's next-door neighbor to find out what he heard, saw, or knew is beyond me. I mean, there were two agencies working this case, the sheriff's office and FDLE. So how did Martin Hollingsworth slip through the cracks? I find myself asking an even more concerning question. Did local deputies who were initially tasked with going door-to-door intentionally overlook Martin? and possibly a lot of other important information and evidence in this case. I mean, from the very beginning of the investigation in 03, everybody knew everybody, the suspects, the police, the victim. Now, that's to be expected in a small town with a small police force, but for one, Pat and DeSoto County Detective Kim Lewis admit during their July 15th crime scene walkthrough on the VHS recording that Pat knew Kim and her father and her family really well. Just as an example, if that was the case, I don't think Kim should have ever been the lead detective conducting Pat's interrogations. I'm not saying Kim should have recused herself entirely from the case, but she certainly should not have been the main person dealing with Pat, which, from all indications, she was. The second thing I can't wrap my brain around is the fact that DeSoto County Sheriff's Office never seized Pat's clothing from the day of the murder. The only items of clothing law enforcement ever took from Pat were a pair of white tennis shoes. According to police reports, the day after John was found, deputies went back to Pat's house and asked her for the clothing she'd been wearing on July 8th, but she told them that she'd done laundry the night before. So deputies just dropped it. But I want to stop and break that down for just a second. Pat told police that mere hours after John was found dead on July 8th, and she's reeling with grief and hosting people in and out of her house all evening, that she found time to do a load of laundry. Why that didn't stick out to DeSoto County investigators as just odd is strange. Regardless of whether she said she washed her clothes or not or did actually wash them, deputies should have still taken that clothing for testing anyway, just like they did for Skip and Patrick. The third thing that's always seemed strange to me is that Skip's phone call records in police reports are visible. But every number that Pat Strader called on the afternoon of July 8th is redacted. If Pat was just as much of a suspect as Skip, then why has the sheriff's office protected her calls from public record, but not Skip's? You can't argue with any of the facts here. And maybe it's not enough to convince you But before you write off a connection between Pat and DCSO as just coincidental, keep listening. 
The last thing that I think is probably the most glaring oversight police made back in 2003 is the fact that they did not impound or process the blue-green Ford Explorer that they knew had been driven all around the crime scene by one of their prime suspects. Nowhere in evidence logs or police reports can I find a shred of paperwork that states authorities impounded that vehicle and searched it for clues. They did, however, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, impound Skip's pickup truck, and they tore it apart. The results of that examination, though, have never been reported. And just to be crystal clear, I don't think the importance of the Explorer can be overstated. That SUV belonged to Pat, but John drove it the most. He had driven it to Walmart an hour before his death. Pat had driven it to get gas, and her and Patrick rode in it to the trash pile. John's gun, holster, thigh strap, and belts were placed into it. Pat, Patrick, and Skip all rode in the Explorer right after finding John's body. This car is a critical piece of evidence. Patrick Skinner thought the same thing when I interviewed him. In fact, after his first few interviews with investigators in 03, he said he never heard what happened to the Explorer or any of the vehicles that were known to be on the property when John was killed. They never seized the Explorer or impounded it or processed it. Did you ever know that? I did not know. Does it surprise you to know that they didn't? I didn't know they impounded Skips. If they tore that apart, I would have I would have to think they would have torn this apart if they think they had probable cause to tear his truck apart. Do you think of the two vehicles, this one should have been looked at since... Well, that's the one that we actually took over there. I mean, this was what John drove for the most part. John did not have really his own vehicle. This Everything belonged to his grandmother. But John drove this more than anyone. And this is what we were in when we found him and what the gun went into. So it's, I guess, yeah, that's a little odd to me. So why was the Explorer never impounded? And what happened to it after the murder? Well, I can now confidently answer that second question. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo may be your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles. Just a better way to watch TV. Philo has an unlimited DVR for one year. Save all your favorite shows so you can watch on your own schedule. Philo allows for multiple profiles and multiple streams, meaning everyone in the house can have their own saved shows and up to three simultaneous streams. Never fight over who gets to pick what to watch. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like ID, Lifetime, and MTV. With Philo, you can start watching in seconds for less money and less hassle. Try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash counterclock. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash counterclock to binge all your favorite murder mysteries now. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. 
With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games. The blue-green Ford Explorer that's so central to the sequence of events on the day John was killed has been a mystery within this bigger mystery for me. How far is it? It is 1.3 miles on the right. During a field reporting trip to Arcadia to try and interview Martin Hollingsworth, my associate producer David Payne and I found ourselves driving along the backside of Pat's property, where her land butts up to Martin's driveway. Martin wasn't home that trip, but our attempt to knock on his door allowed us to see a different side of a field behind Pat's house that we'd not noticed before. And by sheer luck, we made a discovery. She's got every this cover. There's the Ford Explorer. Oh my gosh, no way. Let's get a picture of that. That's the Explorer. That is definitely the same Explorer from back in 2003. David slammed on the brakes. There was no doubt we'd found it. A turquoise, blue-green, old model Ford Explorer that looked like it hadn't been moved or driven in years. I knew it had to be here. That's wild. That is wild. Sitting next to it was a broken down beige sedan and a bunch of rotted and rusted farm equipment, tall grass, and several cows. We took pictures from where we were parked on the public right-of-way, and you can see those images on our website, counterclockpodcast.com. After I got over my initial excitement, I wondered why after all these years, Pat had held on to the Explorer. Why had she parked it on this abandoned section of her land? From the looks of things, it appeared to us that she didn't want anyone to access it, or any square foot of her property for that matter. No trespassing signs were mounted on several fence posts, and these signs were not like the little paper ones you buy at a hardware store. Pat's signs were two feet tall, made of plywood, and listed a lengthy warning for strangers like us and law enforcement to not step foot on her land unless we were invited or had a warrant. To add to the security were heavy chains and locks strung along every gate. So the chances of us getting anywhere near that explorer to take a closer peek were non-existent. Just the fact that it was still there though, and we'd found it. I don't know, made me think, who knows, maybe it holds some valuable clues and it made for a wild day of field reporting. But our adventure wasn't over yet, not by a long shot. The longer David and I hung around Southeast Hansel Avenue, stopping at homes to find people who lived there back in 2003, the more and more we felt like we were being watched. Call it intuition or just a journalist's good instincts, but to us, there was a noticeable sense that every move we made while out there wasn't going unnoticed, and we were absolutely right. The sheriff is waiting for us here. While talking with some residents who were renting a house across the road from Pat's property, we saw a DeSoto County Sheriff's deputy pull up behind our rental car. We'd left our white Jeep parked in the right-of-way so that other cars could go around it. The deputy got out of his cruiser and we walked over to him. He told us that a person who lived on the street had called in to report us. 
Okay. Yeah, we just made did the sure. Straters call or the Matt Wells or Pat Strader? It was anonymous. Oh, okay. Yeah, did so. they? Did we disrupt somebody? They just said that uh, white vehicle, so it looked suspicious going house to house. So. Oh, I see. Yeah, we were suspicious. We're jerks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're definitely yeah. not up to any any bad stuff. Yeah, I figured it just. I mean, some calls we have to come out. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, no, but y'all are good. Okay. okay thank you. Thank you so much. Have a good day. I strongly suspected that Pat had been the person who called the cops on us. Minutes before the deputy showed up, David and I had been taking pictures of the Explorer from afar. So for me, the timing of the call was no coincidence. When I asked the deputy if Pat Strader or Matt Wells had been the person to place the call, he said it came in as anonymous. But here's the thing. In the state of Florida, when you dial 911, those calls get recorded and are accessible via public records request. You just have to know how to get a hold of them before they're purged from a department's data center. I'm 100% sure the person who called the cops on us didn't know this. But their loss was our gain. So right after chatting with the deputy, David and I left Southeast Hansel Avenue and drove straight to the sheriff's office. I told the records division that I wanted to request a 911 call that had come into the sheriff's office that very day between the hours of 11 a.m. and 11.30. And a few days later, an audio file and police report showed up in my email inbox. Here's a copy of the call. The Soto County Sheriff's Office, wrong quarter line. How can I help you? This is Pat Strader. Do you have a detective on there today? Detective who? Anyone. Okay, Kim's not working today, is she? No, she's off. Okay. Who would take her place? We don't have any detectives on right now, being that it's Saturday. We just have road patrol today. Okay, this is what's... There are a couple of people over there talking to my neighbor wanting some information. I want somebody to come tell them to stop it however legally you can do it. Okay, so... Are they on your property? Not at this point. No, they're out on the edge of the road. Okay. But they're, I think they're wanting to interview. Now, who, the, um, gosh, I can't think of his name. He retired. He worked with Kim. There's a new detective that has that. And uh, whenever someone come here several years ago wanting to go in and look and do some things, he told me, tell them to come to him. Okay. All right. So they're just trying to get some information. That's correct. I'll write an article or something now. He's to aggravate the hell out of me. Okay. All right. What are they there right now? They're across the road talking to my neighbor, but I think their white Jeep is parked down there next to the wood bridge, and they look like they might be walking back down towards their vehicle. Okay. So it looks like they might be leaving. Well, they're not talking to him any longer because... Okay. And uh, he told him not to give him, talk to, you know, tell him to call the sheriff's office. And I'm calling you to tell you that what I knew about it. All right. And you said your first name was Patricia? That's correct. Okay. I said Pat, but it, yes, it's Patricia. That's fine. Is your phone number? That's what I'm talking to you on. Perfect. Okay. So would you like me to send a deputy out to speak with you about it? I would because they're walking up and down the road. Okay. They have stepped into the driveway off of the road going across in the pasture. 
Now, they're, they're still on county property. They're not trespassing, but they're stopped there and they're discussing things. Right. And so they're probably going to be taking pictures or something. So if you could get the David to come down and ask them what they're doing and make them tell you what they're doing. Okay. All right. I'll have someone on the way over, okay? Okay. Now, I'm no of that. You're south of the four-way stop? That's correct. Okay. I'll try to get them out there as soon as we can. We're just kind of a little backed up on calls right now, okay? Okay, well, I understand you can't hold my hand, but nevertheless. That's all right. We'll try to help you any way we can. All right. Okay. Well, thanks a lot. I've done my duty, I think. You're welcome. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye-bye. It's really hard to put into words how surreal something like this is. Having the grandmother of a murder victim call the police to report that she's upset that journalists are operating within the law to try and figure out what happened to her grandson is something I've never experienced before in my entire career. While listening to the audio, it's hard not to chuckle at the tone and disposition of the dispatcher, who's trying to figure out why Pat is even calling. He seems genuinely helpful, but also genuinely confused about what she wants him to do. Something I think is even more interesting, though, is who Pat asked to speak with when she gets on the line. Okay, Kim's not working today, is she? No, she's off. I emphasize again, Pat and Kim's relationship seems weird to me. Why is Pat asking specifically for Kim? What does she think Kim will do for her that any other deputy won't be able to do? Another thing this 911 call confirmed for me was that Pat didn't just want us to be shooed away. She wanted to know what we knew, what we were talking to people about. She'd been watching David and I intently while we were working, following our every move, and she was able to give the dispatcher a play-by-play of where we went. Are they on your property? Not at this point. No, they're out on the edge of the road. Who we spoke with and precisely where we were at any given moment. Are they there right now? They're across the road talking to my neighbor, but I think their white Jeep is parked down there next to the wood bridge, and they look like they might be walking back down towards their vehicle. They have stepped into the driveway off of the road going across in the pasture. Now, they're they're still on county property. They're not trespassing, but they're stopped there, and they're discussing things. I can literally see it, her peering out at us from behind her window curtains, phone receiver hard-pressed against one ear. Clearly, David and I just being in the area made her upset. But why? Why wouldn't she want us to find out what happened to her grandson? That's one of many questions I have for Pat and DCSO. What's frustrating is that Pat has declined my request for an interview, and so has Kim Lewis. I've also sent multiple requests to the sheriff's office asking to interview the county's current sheriff, James Potter, but those inquiries have been ignored as well. The department has no reason not to talk to me. They can't claim the case being under investigation as an exemption anymore. Why? It doesn't seem plausible to me. It just doesn't. The answer is on the next episode of Counterclock. Switch. I'm mad. I am furious. It's an insult. Listen right now.
This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. 